As we look this morning, it's Luke 19, uh, verse 45. As we looked this morning in Mark, we saw how Jesus entered and then left the temple. And, and Mark is the, the one gospel writer that really gives, a, gives the storyline. Um, both Matthew and Luke just move from the triumphal entry right into the cleansing of the temple. And if Mark wasn't there, we, we probably wouldn't know or wouldn't at least pick up on the fact that, that it happens on the, the following day. But Mark clearly tells us that it does. And Mark says, following the triumphal entry, Jesus exits probably back through the beautiful gate, which is on the east side of the, uh, of the, of the temple. Having been in the temple, he, he looks around. Um, as we talked before, the temple platform itself, the temple, the temple mount area was Mount Moriah, where uh, Abraham took Isaac uh, to, to sacrifice. Um, it's where Solomon's temple was, was located, um, down... Uh, over the hill, the city of David would have been, and up on this high place, the temple would have been on a, been built on a high place. And as I think I've described it to you before, when Herod built his temple, um, being from West Virginia, I think of like mountaintop removal, because he basically just flattens it out, put, makes a plateau with a with a, a large uh, structure, and he he builds up retaining walls on the side, and this top platform, which which the temple sits right in the in almost in the center of towards the the western side. One of the reasons that you'll see you know you'll you see the picture of the Jews go to uh, uh, some commentators call it the Wailing Wall. Uh, Jewish people don't like that. They would call it the Western Wall. That's the western side of the temple, and that was uh, closer to where the actual holies of holies in the temple sat on top of the platform than on the eastern side. So, so if you think of just this, this piece of paper right here as the, as the temple mount, make sure I get this right, this, this side would be the eastern side and this would be the western side. And the temple would have been, would have been closer to, to this side. So Jesus enters on this side of the temple mount. This whole area right here was about five football fields. So when we start talking about Jesus cleansing the temple, and you get this picture that you see in maybe some of uh, some of the art that that you've that you've observed in the past, and you picture Jesus going into this little room and getting this little cord and you know whipping people out, you're you're let me let me expand your vision. It wasn't a little room. It was an extremely large large area. And on the, the eastern side, there was, a, there was a gate and an entryway that would have led up to the Temple Mount. And then once you got on top of the mount, then you would have entered in the, the temple area itself. Jesus enters on the colt, goes up into the Temple Mount area. No one receives Him. Silent. He looks around, inspects everything, and turns around and probably comes back out the same the same entrance that he that he came in, having presented himself as king, he inspects the temple as only the 
the true Lord could do. As I said, it's obvious he doesn't like what he sees. Um, Jesus, uh, Jer- the Jerusalem during the Passover is probably four to five times the people that it that it normally was. As I said this morning, is very busy. Um, there, there are writings from Josephus and from others that said that that there's so many people that the uh, the Temple Mount couldn't hold them all, and so they would actually spill out over onto the Mount of Olives. And so the Mount of Olives is a is a hill, Kidron Valley, and then up, and then the Temple Mount. So they're almost parallel with one another. You can see, like if I'm standing on top of the Mount of Olives, there's a big valley down in here, and then up the other side, I can almost I'm almost eye level with the with the Temple. And so they would have they would have been everywhere. Um, it it would have been a, it's a magnificent structure. If you see uh, any any pictures of it, some of the stones that they actually they had no idea how they how they, they they how they got some of the stones to the to the base of the temple. Um, some of them are the size solid rock the size of a greyhound bus. Now again, I forget how many. Uh, Hundreds of of thousands of tons. This you know the largest stone is, and of course you know you've got horses and oxen and pulleys and those kind of things. They don't have the massive massive cranes, but um, the temple setting in the middle around the temple, about thirty five yards on the outside of the temple, was a little knee wall, probably about I don't know about this high, um, and that would have been the the court of the Gentiles would have been out here, and on the other side, only Jews, only Jews could go. So the the majority of the Temple Mount area, the five football fields, whatever space the temple itself actually took up, and then 35 yards out from it, the the court of the Gentile wall. The rest of it was open, big open areas on both sides of the temple, and then on the um, ringing the outside of the of the mount itself was was uh, porticos um, the uh, you've heard of Solomon's porch these were you know pillars all the way around and you know with a two-story roof above the pillars and it was a place that was shaded it was open uh, I don't want to say like a gazebo kind of area but but you could get under it and and a lot of teaching happened in those in those those places would have been filled with thousands of, of worshipers, especially during the, the time of the Passover, these porticos in the main area. Very, very busy place. Um, the common area, the area that would have been outside of, the, of that knee wall, um, people would come, uh, Gentiles would come to, to that area, the common area, and they would come in and observe uh, what was happening. In the in the temple, they could see the Jews going in. They could see them carrying their 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 sacrifices. It's an amazing sight. I mean, it was uh, covered in gold and marble. You could smell the the sacrifices like a continual barbecue. Have you ever been outside, come home hungry, and your neighbors grilling hamburgers or something? I mean, that's what this place would have smelled like. I mean, it's a just a continual. Uh, uh, smell of of yummy, you know. Uh, 
I, uh, I saw something the other day that said, thank God for the vegetarians, it leaves all the good food for us. Um, you could see this plume of smoke rising up from, uh, up from the, 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 the middle of the, of the temple itself, rising towards the heavens for the Lord. And Jesus sees all of this. All of this is happening when he goes up into the, into the temple area on the, on, the, on the colt. And none of that was an issue. The problem was what else he found there. And, and under, under Annas the high priest, the area, that common area that I talked about, outside of the, of the knee wall, which would have covered the majority of the platform, it had become a marketplace for for the selling of sacrificial animals, among other things. It was, it was so corrupt, it, it, it garnered the nickname, the Bazaar of, of Annas. It was, a, it, was a, it was a horrible place. And, and Jesus, seeing this, he observes it. And we're not told the look on his face, but I think you can see from the next day, you know, he probably burned with indignation. Because people were profaning an area that was set apart for, for worship. And Luke gives us uh, four verses here. And in these four verses, you're going to see three reactions that the Lord has to the perversion of, of worship. And the first reaction, I think you can find in verse 45, and, and his first reaction whenever Jesus comes in is he de- declares the true intent of their worship. Look at verse 45, if you would. It says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den or a den of thieves. The first reaction that he has in entering the temple the next day is he goes right into the temple and he begins driving out those who are, who are in the marketplace. And he, he makes this statement. It is written, quotes the Word of God, quotes the Old Testament, and he says, My house shall be called a, a house of, of prayer. Now, they call this the cleansing of the temple. It's more, I think, better put, an attack. It's an assertion of authority. Um, it's, it's an attack on the perversion that he saw the day before. He enters the temple, begins to drive people out. text tells us he turns over tables, he releases the animals, the doves. He forbids merchandise from going through the court of the Gentiles. You know, really large structure. And on the back side, again, if I'm using this as the temple mount, okay, this is the Mount of Olive side, this is the backside. There have been houses over here. This is really large. And what they were doing is they were entering the, be- the beautiful gate on this side and they were cutting through the temple. They're taking a shortcut right through the, the area of the temple and coming out the backside. You know, just basically using it as a common area. And he, he stops that. Don't carry your goods through here. Um, turns over the table. Turns over the tables and, and he, he says, quotes 
my house shall be called a, a house of, of prayer. And he means something a lot more than, than just you should be praying in the temple. He, he actually quotes two Old Testament verses here. My house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a robber's den or a den of thieves. He quotes first Isaiah 56, 7. That's the my house shall be called a house of prayer. And if you go back and read it in Mark, he, he adds the, what's in Isaiah, which is my house shall be called a house of prayer to all nations. And that's very significant. That's what's in Isaiah. But Luke just shortens it here. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Isaiah says, my house shall be called a house of prayer to all nations, or for all, for all nations. So I want you to turn back to Isaiah 56. And let's actually see what Jesus is quoting here, because I think it's, I think it's important. Isaiah 56, verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 56, verse 5. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. And a name better than that of the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners or the Gentiles, the nations, who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord, love the name of Yahweh, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. The burnt offerings, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. Why? Here's a little four that's an explanation for why Jesus says, their burnt offerings and sacrifices, that is, the foreigners, the Gentiles, why will He accept them? For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples or all the, or all the nations. This is, a, this is a direct quote. It's a messianic verse about the kingdom. And, and it's specific that the topic is the Gentiles. The Gentiles coming to Christ, coming to God, the Gentiles being accepted by, by God. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to accept their offerings, those who, who come to me by faith. And he's going to do that because my house will be called a house of prayer for, for all peoples. And he declares two things. The significance of this verse that Jesus quotes is it's a reference to the fact that the temple... And Israel were to be a blessing to the Gentiles in the Millennial Kingdom. And he's declaring in this verse, when Messiah comes, he'll bring a blessing to all people. And Israel was supposed to be that to the world now. I mean, the reason that Jesus is, is so upset with, with what's happening is because the Jews, the temple, their worship in and of itself, the, the original intent for the temple and their worship, was to be a light unto the Gentiles. It's no mistake that Jesus quotes this verse. And it's not just because He wants to emphasize prayer. His house, His, his abode, his, the, the center of, of the presence of God in the kingdom and now, 
in this time that being the temple is is to be focused on Him and open to to all peoples and for all peoples. And the, this entire section in Isaiah is is messianic and it's prophetic. If, if you would go, you know where Isaiah fifty three. Everybody loves Isaiah fifty three. Well, that's Isaiah fifty three is right in the in the middle of, of of a large section of Isaiah on on the suffering servant. Isaiah fifty three is just specific to to the actual suffering that the servant will do. Isaiah fifty three presents the suffering servant. Isaiah 54 goes on to declare the covenant of peace that he'll bring. Isaiah 55 is an invitation. Beautiful verse. Verses Isaiah 55, 1 through through 5. It says, come and buy you who have no money. I mean, it's an invitation to come and buy, even though you have no money, and seek the Lord while He may be found, because you have nothing to offer God, and God has already made payment for you. You don't need... You don't need anything. He's already made the way. It's an invitation to come, even though you don't have anything to offer God. Isaiah 56, which we're quoting from here, the one the Lord quotes from, declares that the covenant given to Israel will be extended to all who obey God's voice, including the Gentiles. And Israel was to be a light unto the Gentiles. you remember the, the promise that was given to Abraham? The promise that was given to Abraham, we looked at, at Genesis 12, said it's, the, it's the, the great commission passage of the Old Testament. It was, he, he, he had chose Abraham, and he's going to raise up a nation to be a blessing to all people because salvation is of the Jews, meaning that Jesus is going to come from the Jewish people, but the Messiah was the Savior of the world, not just of the Jewish people. In Israel, between the promise to Abraham and the coming of, of Christ was to, was to make God known to the world. And Israel was called to be a witness to the one true God in the midst of a world of idolatry. You go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, you can go to a number of other places, Isaiah 43.10, Israel was to be a witness to the one true God. They were to make the name of Yahweh known. While all of the other nations were worshiping false gods, Israel was to worship the one true and living God and to be a witness. Israel had a special place because of that. Israel was also to furnish the the penmen and the preservers of the word. The prophets would come from Israel. Um, The Old Testament comes from, from, from Israel. And they were to draw the nations to the Lord by their, by their worship of Him. They were to be a peculiar people. Israel was to be a witness to the world by being a contrast, not by becoming like the world. I mean, you, know, you see over and over in the Old Testament about when, when they begin to, to intermarry with with the Canaanites and all of the others, and, and the Baal worship and the Asherah worship came in, it was, it was a, they were to be a witness to the world by being a contrast, becoming like the world. I think there's a lot of parallels. I don't think, I know there's a lot of parallels between that and the church today, isn't there? We're to be a witness. We're to protect the Word. The, First Timothy tells us that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. It, 
preserves the truth. We're to be salt and light. We're to be distinct from the world. Peter even quotes the Old Testament saying that we're to be a peculiar people. Oh, Now take all of that, take that idea of what Israel was supposed to be in this, this, this verse in Isaiah and go back to, to Luke 19 and insert yourself back into our story. That's what Israel was supposed to be. Now here, in contrast to what Israel was supposed to be, here's God's people in His temple, supposing to worship Him, and in the court of the Gentiles, the area that was set apart for the Gentiles to observe God's people, to worship Him in purity, to be peculiar, so that, that they would worship Him in a specific way to draw Gentiles to the Lord. They were actually being repelled by its corruption. They were being abused by the corruption of the religious leaders. In fact, a lot of the Gentiles were even crowded out of the court of the Gentiles by the sellers and the money changers. Rather than it be a a place of prayer and worship, it was noisy and it was filthy and it was filled with, with all manners of corruption. That's why Jesus is so upset. The stench of animals was bad, but the the stench of the corruption in the nostrils of God was even worse. And Jesus says it's not supposed to be that way. My house is to be called a house of prayer for all peoples. It's to draw other people to me. You're God's people. Anyone should be different. It should be you. And if so, you would have had the blessing of the of the Messianic reign upon you, but instead I'm going to drive you out. You're an offense to God. That's basically what Jesus is saying. So he declares the true intent. The second reaction is the other half of that verse that he quotes from Jeremiah. Exposes the wicked intent of their their system. He starts with the true intent of worship. My house is supposed to be this way, but this is what you've made it. He exposes their wicked intent. You've... He declares in verse 45, you, you made it a robber's den or a, a cave or a den of thieves. He exposes what it had become. That's Jeremiah chapter 7, verse, verse 11. It's part of a sermon that Jeremiah preached at the, at the temple gate before Christ ever came. And it was to Israel about their hypocrisy. That's where this robber's den or you made it a den of thieves comes from. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And in that day, Jeremiah is pronouncing woes, preaching against the worship of Israel. And they were going about their business of worship. They were making eloquent words and going through religious practices. And, and yet God says from Jeremiah, your hearts are filled with wickedness. And he was was not where they were, were dwelling at the moment. It's not Jeremiah 7, 8-11. Behold, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. You steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, offer sacrifices to Baal. You walk after other gods that you have not known. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered that you may do all of these abominations 
Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it. I see it. I'm aware of it. I know. I know what you're doing. You're living this way, and yet you're coming into the temple. You think because you're going through the religious practices of presenting yourself to the temple, I don't know what you're doing outside. It's, it's not just your outward practice, but the inward motives of your heart. I see it, that's what he says. And Jesus is saying, my house is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, to draw all people, but, but, but you are just like your religious leaders. This system is just like it was in the days of Jeremiah. And just because you've got the temple and you're doing all this stuff doesn't mean that it matters one hill of beans. It's, I see it. And then it he drives out those who are buying and selling. I've actually heard, I haven't heard anyone myself, but I've heard people heard of people using this verse to say, see, Jesus is against capitalism. It's drying out, driving out people who are buying and selling right here. It's proof. Jesus is, is not upset at capitalism here. He's... He's upset at using God as a marketing tool. The temple platform was operated under the authority of the religious leaders. It was, it was the privilege of the high priest. Anybody that got on the temple mount had to go through the high priest to get there, which meant he had to endorse whatever was, whatever was going on. The men who controlled that courtyard area that Jesus is in, turning the tables over, was using it for a money-making scheme. In fact, everyone was, was in on the take. Um, the merchants, the people who were there, buying and selling, would buy the rights to sell the animals and the wine and the oil. They, they would buy booth space. And guess who they would buy it from? They would buy it from the, the high priest and, and his minions, and they would pay a fee. Not only did they pay a fee for the spot, the high priest also got a percentage of everything that was sold there. Uh, chief priest oversaw the daily activities. You can begin to understand why they were so upset in the days following. I mean, Jesus doesn't just turn over their apple cart. He, you know, he blows up their, their pyramid marketing scheme here. They became very, very wealthy because of it. It was also corrupt. According to Levitical law, any animal was acceptable to be offered as long as it was approved by the priests. But they would reject the offerings that someone would get. They'd find a problem with it. So you'd have to buy one on the temple grounds. Not only that, if you were going to carry a goat or whatever it was all the way from Galilee, that was a pretty long trek. And so you probably didn't carry it. You would have to buy it there. And so it was documented that people would be forced to pay as much as ten times for the animal's normal normal cost. And this was at the temple. Okay? You gotta pay ten times the cost for you know for fuel oil or gasoline or electricity or whatever it is because of supply and demand, that's life. If you're running the temple of God and you're doing that to fleece people who come in to actually worship God it's a big issue. And if that wasn't enough, 
the people who didn't have the right currency, they brought Galilean coins or otherwise, they would have to give to the money changers to change their money into, the, into what could be used on the Temple Mount, and they would mark it up as much as 25%. And the priest would get a kickback from that. I mean, the Lord wasn't kidding when He said it was a den of thieves. Uh, literally. And Mark gives us a, a particular insight. I won't have you go back there, but if you look in, in Mark, uh, right after Mark 11, the passage, it says that, particularly it says that He turned over one of the table-selling doves. And before I tell you, can you think of why that is significant? Why is it significant that Mark mentions that he specifically turns over the tables of the selling of doves. Can you think of who bought the doves? That's exactly right. The poor people. They were abusing the poor. They didn't just fleece the rich. They were abusing the poor. A dove or a pigeon was the offering for those who couldn't afford a goat or, or a higher-priced animal. And they were being fleeced by these priests of God, those who were to shepherd the flock of Israel. If you want to make God your enemy, you do two things. It's very simple in the Bible. You want, to do, you want God to be your enemy, you do two things. Number one, lift yourself up in pride. God is against the proud. When God is your enemy, be a proud man or a proud woman. And number two, you abuse the innocent. Whether that's the poor, whether that's a woman whether that's an infant, a baby in the womb, you abuse the innocent and God will be against you. It shouldn't surprise us that after going through all of that, that, that um, they were careless about God's presence as well. I mean, they're showing irreverence for God's temple. I told you Mark talked about how they stopped those carrying merchandise. You know, merchandise through. I can remember whenever I worked up at uh, at Eagle Irie, um, there was a big, uh, there was a group that doesn't normally come there, and we had to set up one of the the rooms up there, and you know, it was going to be a worship service, and uh, never seen anything like it before. Don't know the name of the group. I just remember this in particular. We set it up. There was probably 200 people that were there. You know, pulpit preacher area up front. Chairs just about like this. And when the group came to set up, there were two vans that, you know, that, that pulled in. And they lined both sides of the inside of the, the worship area there with, um, it looked like a flea market. I don't mean, I don't mean like, you know, selling books or stuff like that. I'm talking like the, you know, fake cologne, you know, like the, the polo Marcos and the, and watches and, and, you know, and clothing and all kinds of just normal, just normal things. And I just thought, that's so weird. I've never seen anything like that. And I mean, they're just here. They're just, they're just walking right through the temple. They're carrying their stuff as if, as if they're oblivious to, to the fact that, that, that the, the, this is the place where the presence of the Creator Himself where an atonement is made, in, 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 right next to it, and it's like they're oblivious. Um, the eastern gate was the was the pastor. What's what is Jesus's reaction to all of this? 
was another clue that's found in verse 47. And you can find his third reaction. It's kind of tucked into, into the words of verse 47, but you can go to Matthew and see exactly what's going on. The third is to display the indignation of, of God in His in His coming judgment. That's the third reaction that Jesus has. Displays the indignation of God in His in His coming judgment. I mean, this is not the only judgment that came upon the religious leaders and the people that are here. Is Jesus just coming in, turning over tables, and running everybody out and taking control of the temple? It's not the only thing that that happens. That happened. And it stopped it for those few moments, for those days while Jesus was there during the week of the Passover. But but there was also it was also symbolic the judgment that that was to come. Look at verse forty seven. And he Luke says, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word. Now, what do you think he was teaching that made them so mad? Of course they were mad about what he just did and what he proclaimed. Luke says he was teaching daily, and his teaching had them so upset, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders were trying to kill him, they were trying to destroy him. We'll turn over to Matthew 23. And you won't have to turn back to Luke, but Matthew 23. And we will read the words of Jesus' teaching. That's directly related to what's going on in the Temple Mount area. This is why they want to kill him. He's pronouncing judgment on them. Verse 13. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you've shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in. How are they shutting off the kingdom of heaven? They weren't being allied unto the Gentiles. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. They're devouring the homes of the poor, of the widows. They're abusing the innocent. Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe unto those who are blind guides, who swears by the temple that is nothing. Whoever swells by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that's sanctified by the gold? They had, they had levels of what they would swear by. If I swear by the, 
if I swear by the temple, I'm really serious. If I swear by the gold of the temple, I'm really, really serious. Now I'm, now I'm really telling the truth. This goes back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let the words that come out of your mouth be truthful. Don't, don't have degrees of, now I'm really being truthful. Verse 19, you blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything in it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and him who dwells in it. Whatever you swear by, you're accountable to your words. It doesn't matter whether you swear by this or that. It's God holds you accountable for, your, for the truthfulness of your words. Whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and him who sits on it. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You scribes and woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but the inside you're full of robbery. Self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Verse 27, You're like whitewashed tombs, which the outside appears beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all matters of uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy. And lawlessness. That's why they wanted to kill him. <laughs> I mean, he's just filleting them. Woe unto those who call evil good and good evil in our day. Woe unto the church that does not feed people the scriptures. Calls for other things, their props. Woe unto us who flirt and pander with the pander to the world, the very people that are supposed to be peculiar that we might be able to win those. Judgment will come. Came there. Jesus cleanses the temple and then he makes a pronouncement in Luke. In seventy AD there wasn't a single stone. They still are not worshiping in the temple today. It's gone. Never been restored. Um, go to Revelation and find the churches that Jesus writes the seven letters to, and he says, If you do not repent, I'm going to remove your light from the lampstand, meaning I'm going to take you out. And go to Ephesus today and see if that church is, is still there or some of the other places. And um, we're not above what Jesus is saying to to the religious leaders here. Um, I guess the point is, don't think that God is indifferent to to sin or the perversion of of worship, um, because He's not. And... uh, this is how he reacts to it in that day or in uh, or in our or in our day. You remember we read over in Peter, I think it was judgment 
Let's begin at the house of God. He's basically saying that you'll go through, you remember this is a passage about suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked by the fiery trial, which is to try you. You know, rejoice in that. Evaluate yourselves and make sure you don't let any of you suffer as a thief or a robber or an evildoer or a busybody. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, then commit it to the Lord. Because judgment must begin in the house of God. And if you as believers, what he's saying, if you as believers must go through suffering for sanctification, if God will, will cause us to run through the gauntlet of the world and, and have pain and difficulty, and that is for, for our good, if, if we're His children and He will bring us through that, What's it going to be like in the end for those who, who actually face God's judgment, not His purifying fire? The Lord purges us and the, the Lord will ultimately bring, uh, bring horrific judgment uh, on, the, on the world. Let me pray. Father, as we bow before You tonight, um, I think this message calls for us to examine our own hearts. Lord, You still have a purpose for Israel. You will restore the nation one day. You'll fulfill all of the promises that You've made. They will have the land, the blessings in the Millennial Kingdom. And, and yet, Lord, You have... You've brought your church to the forefront. You've opened the door to the Gentiles. We're the Gentiles. That we might even be used to provoke the Jews to jealousy. You warn us in the book of Romans, if, if you would be that severe with your people, who your promises and callings are irrevocable, we're a wild olive branch. If you'll do that to, to a branch that's part of the tree, we better, we better take those words seriously. So, Father, as we, we examine our own hearts tonight, search us. Help us to see if we've become too familiar with You, if we need to be called back to Your holiness if we're just walking in the, the door of the, and just crossing the, the Temple Mount and going out the other side and not even paying attention to the fact that the, the God of the universe speaks to us from His Word every single time we gather. Father, if, we're, if there's any hypocrisy in our lives, if... We're too worried about the outward, what other men think, but inside, Lord, there are issues. Sync those things up. Help us to repent and confess them. It's not what others see, it's what you see. Search our hearts, Lord. Father, we do pray that you would be pleased with, with our worship. It would be a time of joy. Help us to not be so worried about the trappings, the externals. Be worried about the heart. 
Help us to worship You in spirit and in truth. And may You be pleased. May it rise before You as a sweet sacrifice. And as You you see us depending upon Your work on the cross, depending, leaning completely upon Christ and His worth alone and not what we do. And that be pleasing unto You. May You preserve us from sin. May we be a light. May we... May we be peculiar. May other people be drawn to the worship of of Christ through us. May we defend the innocent, Lord. May we not abuse the poor. May we care for those who are the weakest among us, or whoever they are, our children, our widows, those who are are ill, those who are going through hard times, help us to weep with them and and care for them, not just cast them aside or evaluate them based upon what they can do or not do any longer. Lord, we desire to be pleasing to You. Help us to be pleasing as a church. Help us, Lord, this week, even as we think of as Keto prayed earlier. We're reminded again while we were yet sinners. Not after we cleaned up, but while we were yet sinners. You died for us. You came for us. Help us to remember that. Reconnect to that this week. And that we would enter this coming Sunday with uh, the song of joy in our hearts. As we would take the Lord's Supper this this Thursday night, that we would, we would be mindful of what You paid for our sin. Oh Lord, we're we're so weak and frail. We need you. We love you. We thank you that you love us. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite somebody uh, to to church. Bring somebody on on uh, on Thursday night. Um, that will be a little bit more difficult because it's the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of Timberlake, as you know, to partake in the Lord's Supper. So invite any of your family or friends that are believers. But Thursday night, um, it uh, may, be, may be uncomfortable for unbelievers to watch the plate pass in front of them. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. You be the judge of that. But definitely on Easter, um, I'm going to be preaching... Uh, an evangelistic passage and um, pray for me, pray for those who uh, who come um, that the Lord will prepare their hearts and that nothing will get in the way for them to get here. So, I mean, there, there's, there's, there, there's real wickedness in the world. I know you know that. But, but it's not nebulous. It's not just in general. Okay, he's, he's alive and, and Satan works and and he does things that you can't see, and your job's not to run around and look for the the devil or behind every bush or blame everything on demons. Your our responsibility is preach and pray, proclaim the gospel. The gospel delivers from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. Colossians says, and we pray. Um, it's God's business dealing with the devil, but we need to pray and be aware and. 
He's real. And He does strive to keep people uh, you know, from the Gospel. Um, you don't want your Gospel to be hidden uh, because Satan has blinded the minds. And um, just being under the sound of the Word, God can use to open, open people's eyes. You've heard testimony after testimony of people that came to church that never intended to come to Christ the day that they came to church, right? I didn't intend to come to Christ the day I came to church. And yet when I came, uh, God knew that I was going to come to Christ that day. And, and they, they come and they, they hear the Word and you don't know what the Lord's going to do. And if they come and, and they don't come to Christ, um, don't be discouraged. I mean, pray for their souls. But don't be cast down. That may be another step, another, another link in the chain that, that God's going to use too, to ultimately bring them. I, don't, I couldn't count how many times I heard the gospel before I finally received it. And um, so you don't know. Um, you just don't know. But in, in, invite, invite somebody to come and, uh, and pray this week. Focus this week. You know, we don't do the the Lent stuff and 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 the you know the traditional things, but there are some principles behind some of those things that 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 may be good for you and you and I to consider. Which is setting aside a time to focus on the Lord. Maybe this week would be a good week to cut out your TV. Maybe it'd be a good week to put down Facebook and whatever else gobbles up your time, um, and focus on the Lord. Maybe the time that you normally use for trivial things, you would set aside for the Lord and read His Word and, and pray. Uh, pray for, for the service. Pray for others. Ask the Lord to search you. Um, it's kind of like if you come to church expecting a blessing or expecting to hear from God. It's funny how that's fulfilled. And yet if you come, you know, humdrum, not really paying any attention, that's usually fulfilled too. Um, Every service, every Sunday, people are hanging on every word. The Lord is converting people. He's sanctifying people. And people, some people are absolutely cold, dead asleep. Same preacher, same sermon. You don't know what the Lord's, what the Lord's going to, to do. So um, be intentional, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Be intentional uh, this week and come on Thursday night uh, full. Um, 